Welcome to the Keep Texas Red podcast, where we discuss the importance of true conservative values. Follow us on KeepTexasRed.org. And now, here's your host, campaign strategist and political commentator, Joseph Vargas. So I'm sure everybody out there has heard of the uh, Texas Nationalist Movement. You see all the flyers and the banners out there in some people's homes and businesses. So what exactly is this Texas Nationalist Movement? So today on our Keep Texas Red podcast, we have Daniel Miller. Uh, he is a sixth generation Texan, a technology consultant and best-selling author. And he is a founder and president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. So welcome Daniel Miller to our podcast. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, it's great to have you. Now, Danny, before we move on to what the uh, TNM is, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become involved in Texas politics? Well, uh, man, that's a that's a, a pretty long and involved story, um, you know, a long, strange trip. Uh, but, you know, for me, politics was just sort of the, the background of uh, background noise from uh, growing up. My you know, in short, was raised by my grandparents. They were both uh, Depression era folks, and uh, they were always, you know, both super blue collar. Uh, we always had enough money to get by, but never enough to get ahead. You know, like a standard story for a lot of people here in Texas. Uh, but one thing that that um, happened was every night uh, we would gather around the dinner table. Uh, the TV would be on in the background to the news. Uh, and there would be discussion at the table about uh, politics. And so I can remember some of my earliest memories were uh, going out there, putting out campaign signs with my dad. Um, you know, never they were never politicians, but just uh, engaged. Yeah, I would never I would even call them activists, just very interested in how they were being governed. And so that was how how it happened as I grew up. When I was 18 years old, I ran for mayor of my hometown. Um, who it, it was that that's a whole other perhaps podcast right there about that one. But uh, I did not win that race, but I, I learned a lot uh, about politics, uh, particularly politics in a small town. Uh, from there, uh, I got engaged in activism, particularly surrounding, you know, constitutional issues, you know, obviously during the Clinton administration back in the 90s uh, and and all of the, the horrible things that were coming out of the Clinton administration. Uh, and all of that really just led to additional frustration. Uh, but in uh, August of 1996, August 24th, 1996, uh, I was introduced to the idea of Texas becoming a self-governing independent nation. Uh, and I realized that Texas independence solved those frustrations. You know, if Washington, D.C. is the source of, of all of these challenges, uh, then we could reassert our status as an independent nation. And uh, a lot of that came from the the way the reason that it clicked. I think so easily for me uh, was not that I was reacting to something specific, but rather I was mining something out that I had read a few years previous uh, in a book called Global Paradox by a man named John Nesbitt. Uh, Nesbitt was best selling author. He wrote Megatrends, Megatrends two thousand. You know, they're they're legends in sort of geopolitical futurism. Uh, but he wrote this book called Global Paradox, and it was ostensibly about the telecommunications revolution. Uh, but the thesis of the book was that the world's trends point overwhelmingly toward economic interdependence on one hand and political independence on the other. And he cited a statistic in there that when you you know kind of drill down, he just kind of was almost a throwaway section in the book. But 
when you drill down on it, you realize that at the end of World War II, there were about 54 fully recognized, self-governing, sovereign countries around the world. And by the end of the 20th century, or by the time the book had come out, there were at that time 192. Now, those countries didn't fall from space. The earth didn't get any bigger. Uh, what happened was there were people like us that were tired of being governed by people that they didn't elect, forcing policies on them that they didn't want, and they reclaimed their right of self-government. So it's one of the reasons that the idea of Texas independence clicked with me. And so since August 24th, 1996, uh, I've been working to see Texas as a free, independent, self-governing nation among nations again. So, Dana, you are the uh, president and the founder of the Texas Nationalist Movement. Right. Which, like you said, it is committed to making Texas an independent nation again. It's also known as Texit. So tell us in simple words, what exactly is Texit? Yeah, Texit and, and the mission of the TNM are not to be confused because Texit is a part of what we do. But simply put, uh, the mission of the Texas Nationalist Movement is to secure and protect the political, cultural, and economic independence of the nation of Texas. Uh, and so as part of that, um, obviously, Texas is the sexy topic everyone wants to talk about, right? Um, but, you know, people look at, at Texas as the end goal, and Texas isn't the end goal. Independence is the end goal. Texas is the process. So, you know, many people have heard probably of Brexit, and so Texas, it becomes the, the natural thing, right? Brexit is where the UK voted to withdraw from the European Union. Uh, and Texas is, is a, a very similar situation where Texas is working to, by a vote of the people, withdraw from the union and become a self-governing independent nation. Um, you know, we started using that term, funny thing, um, we started using that term after uh, it was first used uh, after the Greek Euro crisis, right? When... Uh, the European Union was squeezing Greece, and Greece was talking about abandoning the euro to go back to the drachma. And uh, there were economists that were referring to that as Grexit, a Greek exit from the euro. And and we saw it, and we thought, well, you know, we actually have an X in our name, so it kind of works better for what we're doing. And we started using it. And of course, you know, people, you know, they saw Brexit, they knew what was going on, but. Uh, effectively, Texit is a—it's not an act; it's a process, uh, and it's that process of Texas reasserting its status as an independent nation. So, Daniel, let's talk numbers here. Uh, okay, how much support does this Texas nationalist movement have among Texans, and I guess more importantly, if you're getting get anything done among the legislature? Yeah, so uh, just you know, a little context. When we founded the Texas Nationalist Movement in 2005, uh, the issues, all the third-party polling we could find, which was only a handful, showed that there was about somewhere around single digits of support for Texas independence here in Texas. Uh, we always joke and say that even though it was that low, we've always polled higher than the approval rating of the United States Congress, which typically polls somewhere right above or below that of leprosy, right? So... Uh, they're they're entire they're not very popular here, but but Texas has always been sort of that that background noise. So we we committed first and foremost because we didn't really believe that number, but we sent out to connect with voters all throughout Texas and just ask them and connect with them and let them know that there was an organization working for this. And and what we found in reality uh, was that support for Texas was not being reflected in any of those third party polls. So in 2009, you had a, a poll that came out after Rick Perry made some comments at a Tea Party event 
uh, about Texas withdrawing from the union. You had a Research 2000 poll that came out that showed just under 50% of Republicans, uh, about 40% of independents, and 15% of Democrats believe that Texas would be better off as an independent nation. So we continue to work. You fast forward to 2014. There was the the famous Reuters-Ipsos poll uh, where they flat asked people whether they believe that their state should withdraw from the union. And the responses in Texas from that poll were 54% Republicans, half of independent voters, and 35% of Democrats. Uh, so what we have seen since then is is even a growth in that number, so much so that we are 100% confident that if Texas goes to a vote of the people tomorrow, it wins. And it doesn't win by a little. It wins by a lot. So obviously, if you started the uh, Texas nationalist movement, you believe this is possible for Texas to leave the union and be a nation again. In simple terms, can you walk how the steps would be? What are the steps how this would be accomplished? Yeah, look, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, the, w- when you talk about the idea of it being possible, I mean, you, you have to you have to understand that if 140 others, other self-governing nation states can appear since the end of World War II, w- what do they have that we don't? And the fact of the matter is, is Texas is a global powerhouse across every single solitary ranking that you could possibly imagine. So, you know, if though if we can't, then who in the world can, right? But, you know, the, the process is pretty straightforward. Um, the one thing people need to understand is uh, we understand that the United States Constitution is a limiting instrument, right? It limits the federal government, and anything not granted to the federal government or uh, or prevented to the states is reserved to the states and the people. So you look at Article One, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, and you find that uh, a list of everything states are forbidden from doing. Withdrawing from the Union is not in that list, Right. So under the 10th Amendment, it's a power reserved to the states. So we have to look to what Texas law says and the Texas Constitution says, and it's important because states like Nevada uh, in their Constitution actually uh, forbid Nevada from withdrawing from the Union. Uh, So we have to look at what the legal framework is here. And what we see is in Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution, uh, it, it very clearly reserves to the people the right to alter, reform, or abolish our government in such manner as we may think expedient. So we understand from Article 1, Section 2, even though there is no uh, statute that has grown from that, we understand that the Constitution recognizes the right of self-government as an inalienable right to the people of Texas, like the right to keep and bear arms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, those things. So we understand that for Texas to happen, at a minimum, it must be put to a vote of the people, right? So we're talking about a Scottish-style or uh, you know Brexit-style referendum. Ultimately, what needs to happen to kick off the process is that we have to have a vote on this issue. We have to put the question to the people of Texas. Then when the people of Texas make the decision... Then we have to go through what is effectively a four-step process, which is, number one, uh, the legislature of Texas, the government of Texas, has to uh, enact that political will. They have to make uh, changes to the Constitution that bring it into effect. They have to make statutory changes. Texas will then have to sign on to any international covenants, treaties, uh, agreements, whatever those are. Uh, that, that we wish to. And then the final part is the negotiation phase where we have to negotiate out specific uh, points of, of nexus with the federal government, such as what will Texas 
portion of the federal debt be? What do we do with federal property, military bases, et cetera, uh, here in Texas? Uh, what happens to the uh, Texas dollars that are in the Medicare trust fund? You know, there are a few points up for negotiation, but beyond that, um, about, you know, 80% of the work that has to be done uh, gets done by the state of Texas after a Texas vote and before we ever have to sit down at the table with the federal government to negotiate a single issue. Okay, Daniel, so let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Okay. Uh, how do you explain the 1869 Texas versus White case where the Supreme Court held that the United States is an indestructible union from which no state can secede? How does the Texas nationalist movement respond to the Supreme Court case? Well, it's it's interesting because that that's another entire podcast. Uh, I could literally stay here for an hour and destroy Texas versus White. But but here's what you got to understand: uh, beyond tackling sort of the the mechanical defects of Texas versus White, like Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase should have recused himself from the case because it actually involved an incident that happened while he was the Secretary of Treasury. Um, under under Lincoln, uh, which so he he was actually part of the incident that led up to the case, right? So he should have recused himself. He didn't. Uh, but beyond that, let's look at Chase's logic. Okay, so in the in the majority opinion written by Chase, where he says those words that that you said, he makes uh, there, there's uh, he makes a lot of fallacious arguments. Number one, the number one assertion that he makes is that the United States Constitution is not a governing instrument into, uh, unto itself, but is in fact an amending instrument to the Articles of Confederation. Okay, now, that was such an outlier opinion of the day. I mean, literally, Chase pulled that one out of the ether. Okay, but he said that the Constitution is an amendment to the Articles of Confederation. Well, he does that because he wants to grab a hold of a clause in the Articles of Confederation that refer to the Articles, to the union created by them, as a perpetual union, right? So he makes this logical jump just so he can grab the perpetual union phrase out of the Articles. Now, we all know that the Articles of Confederation did not create a perpetual union because, in fact, the states had to secede from the union created by the Articles of Confederation to to uh, ratify the United States Constitution and create another union, okay? So we, we know that that's garbage, okay? But beyond that, to continue the connection, because just because it said perpetual union in, our, in the Articles of Confederation doesn't mean that that immediately carries over to the United States Constitution. So the argument that he makes is that the preamble to the United States Constitution says that it is to form a more perfect union. And so, therefore, because the Articles of Confederation say that it's to be a perpetual union, this one is going to be, what, perpetualer? <laughs> more perpetual? I mean, you know, what, what What does that look like? I mean, it's just, it's such a ridiculous argument. So much so that, that northern states were infuriated by the decision uh, to the point that, you know, because uh, granted, not only for the logical leaps, but because of the usurpation, uh, Chase was effectively trying to legislate from the bench. But here's, here's, so here's what you got to, so the entirety of Chase's decision, number one, this was not under consideration. It was not the issue under consideration by the case. So therefore, 
it really is nothing more than dicta or commentary by the Chief Justice. But because the entirety of his decision rests upon his reliance, not only on his logical fallacy, but solely constitutionally on the preamble. Fast forward to the early 1900s with uh, Supreme, the Supreme Court case of Jacobson v. Massachusetts. The main takeaway from Jacobson v. Massachusetts in that decision was that the federal government can derive no powers from the preamble to the United States Constitution. So that one act alone absolutely destroys Texas v. White. So without it being directly overturned, Jacobson v. Massachusetts completely guts Texas v. White, doesn't overturn the decision, because remember, the decision was specifically about the case related to bonds in Texas v. White. But it, it completely decimates the rationale that he used to essentially declare that states couldn't leave. And then you, you get into this issue. People love to talk about Chase saying that it's an in, indestructible union comprised of indestructible states. But then he also goes on in his decision to say that states can leave the union through uh, revolution or consent of the states. Well, wait a minute. Is it indestructible or is it not? Right? And if it's an indest- so it's, you know, it's apparently not indestructible because he said, hey, here's two mechanisms I'll give you to do it. But what about this concept of indestructible states? Someone please explain to me West Virginia. How does West Virginia exist if states are indestructible? So Texas versus White is utter garbage. Jacobson v. Massachusetts utterly turned the table over, destroyed Texas v. White, effectively rendering it moot. But finally, if you go with the federal government's own assertion that treaties are effectively the same level of of law as the Constitution, then Uh, Unfortunately for those globalists that signed the United Nations Treaty, that act alone destroyed the idea in Texas versus White that states couldn't withdraw because in Article 1, Section 2 of the United Nations Treaty, the one signed and ratified by the United States, it it recognizes the fundamental right of self-determination for people. And and while it was probably part of a bunch of decolonialization efforts, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that treaties signed that that they are holding at the same level or higher than federal law and the Constitution. You know, preemption by by treaty is effectively what it is. Uh, that decision right there to sign that treaty utterly put the nail, the final nail, in the coffin of Texas v. White. So you've been at the uh, Texas Nationalist Movement for a while already. Do you feel, Daniel, that you've exhausted all other venues before recruiting to the Texas Nationalist Movement? I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I understand the question. Can you kind of drill down on that? For me? I mean, have you already exhausted all other options before actually saying, you know what, it's time for Texas to leave the United States? Uh, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that's where it is, but I think it's beyond just sort of a, a reaction. I, I think... You know, the, the one thing you have to ask yourself is, is the federal government, can it be fixed? And if it can be, why hasn't it already been done, right? And so you can look at it from a, a reaction standpoint and say, look, you know, the federal government is doing heinous things. We can no longer abide this. But you can also, I think there's another positive aspect to look at, right? And that is, what could Texas do if it was self-governing, right? We know that the union doesn't serve us. 
But, but I'll tell you this. This is how we put it to the people of Texas, and it's quite simple. Imagine for a moment that Texas was already a self-governing, independent nation among nations, right? We had control over our own border and immigration policy. Uh, we had our own monetary system, our own military, our own passports and embassies, our own national sports teams, right? I mean, we everything that every other self-governing, independent nation has around the world. Imagine that that's way, the way we were right now. And instead of talking about withdrawing from the union. Instead, we were talking about whether or not we wanted to join. Knowing everything you know about the federal government right now, today, would you vote to join the union? No. Well, if you wouldn't vote to join, then why in the world would you ever vote to stay? And and that's ultimately the question that the people of Texas have to answer. And it's one of the reasons that the opposition loves to lie about Texas, mischaracterize Texas, and, and, and engage in fear-mongering. But the good news is the people of Texas don't scare easy, uh, and we've already seen this playbook. We saw it in play in Scotland. We saw it with Brexit, and we've seen it with hundreds of other, with well, well over 100 independence movements around the rest of the world over the last 75 to 80 years. So we're, we're immune to the fear. Uh, they're not going to scare us into this, and Texans, at the end of the day, deserve to be able to make a rational choice on whether or not we should reassert our status as an independent nation. So the purpose of the Texas would be for Texas to be established as its own nation and get away from all the federal tyranny. But let me ask you this, Daniel, um, at the current time, Texas is not really pushing back against a lot of the federal tyranny we have. I mean, we have a border that's wide open. Uh, Texas is not really doing much about it. You know, you got all these illegal aliens coming in and a lot of NGOs, even Border Patrol, Texas National Guard, they're all working together to just process these people. So the current government in Texas is not really doing much against the federal tyranny. So what is to say that if we became our own nation, the Texas officials that are in there right now wouldn't just create their own state tyranny? Yeah, look, and it's a it's a solid question. And, and I will tell you that part of what I refer to it as is electile dysfunction, right? Um, you know, we've got a problem with these elected officials in, in Austin. But I think it's important for us to understand where the source of this comes from, right? These guys, this doesn't, what's happening here in Texas is not operating in a vacuum. We see our elected officials defer to the federal system time and time again across a whole host of issues, right? Whether it's the border, whether it's whatever, they use the federal government as a scapegoat. So let's, let's kind of look at the situation as it is. Elected officials, when put in Texas here, when put in a position to prioritize Texans over the federal government, choose the federal government every time, right? They'll send tersely worded emails or angry tweets, right? But when their backs are up against the wall and they have a clear binary choice between serving the people of Texas and serving the federal government, they serve the federal government. It's just the way that they do it, okay? So you take the federal government out of that out of that equation, and then the only people they're, they're having to serve are the people of Texas. There is no longer any choice. So no longer is it going to be a contest of politicians to see which ones of these guys can tweet the angriest at the White House. It's, are you getting the job done for the people of Texas now that we have removed what you claim is the chief impediment to getting these things done, like securing the border? Additionally, one of the things that we have to also look at is that, as I said, we're not operating in a vacuum. Uh, you go back to the 86th legislative session, 
and uh, you run a study on the bills that were filed there like we did, and what you're going to find is 41% of the legislation filed in the 86th directly referenced the federal government, uh, a federal statute, a federal court case, whatever it is. Well, what that means is, is that about half of our laws being written by our legislature are effectively coming out of Washington, D.C. They are putting the bumpers on what we can and cannot do and the ways in which we have to do it here. Additionally, look at it this way. Right now, Texas overpays anywhere from $103 to $160 billion annually into the federal system. Okay, That's an overpayment. That's not the total amount, but that's an overpayment. Imagine what happens here in Texas when that money stays here in Texas. Imagine now we're not having to kowtow to the federal government to try to claw back some of the taxpayer money that we got. It's already here. But finally, and and you, I think you will appreciate this one because I think it's important. So many of the people that run for office here in Texas, so many of the elected officials that we have right now, their primary concern is using some office here in Texas as a potential stepping stone to a federal office. So they are never focusing on what they can do to serve the people of Texas. What they're really focused on is playing to potentially a larger audience with aspirations of grandeur. It's been no secret that Greg Abbott has been running for gov- for, uh, for president of the United States since he was attorney general, right? It's all a stepping stone. Now imagine that that goes away, right? Imagine that there is no higher office for these elected officials but that that they have right here in Texas. Whatever that office is, at a minimum, at the very top to the very bottom, it's about serving the people of Texas, not playing to an audience of potential presidential voters 12, 16 years down the road, but to serve the needs of the people here in Texas today, right now. So with you, with uh, the ability that Texas brings to remove the scapegoat, a.k.a. the federal government, to remove the very clear harms that the federal government perpetrates upon the people of Texas, to be able to save our money, spend it here, and grow our economy from the ninth largest in the world to perhaps the fifth or sixth, and finally, to remove those rungs from the ladder that these political opportunists love to try to climb up to, to placate a much larger audience outside of Texas, what we get is what Texit provides, and that is an opportunity to finally have elected officials that are responsive to us. Because at the moment that Texit happens, and this is the final thing, at the moment that Texit happens, then contributions that come in from California or New York or K Street lobbyists in Washington, D.C. are foreign contributions. You turn the taps off. No more Beto O'Rourke fundraisers in Hollywood. No more Greg Abbott flying out to Orange County, California for fundraisers. They're foreign contributions. And so now the people that they can get money from for their reelection campaigns are only Texans. So tons of benefits to provide Texas, and it has a massive impact on, on this electile dysfunction that we experience here in Texas. So Daniel, earlier in our conversation, you said that Texas was just one part of the Texas nationalist movement. So what other activities are involved with the Texas nationalist movement aside from Texas? Yeah, I mean, uh, you go back to what I talked about related to our mission, right? The political, cultural, and economic independence of Texas. We have a a decidedly strong viewpoint about, about independence. 
independence is the ultimate goal, right? We want to be independent, self-governing, not reliant on some other political outfit, some other union, whatever it is. We we want to be independent. And when we, two years before we started the TNM in 2005, we did this exhaustive study of independence movements around the world to determine, you know, what worked, what didn't work, you know, who, who won, who lost, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, but what we were able to mine out was is that political advocacy organizations that that pursued independence for their nation, they had to fo- they had to be holistic in their mission, right? They had to engage in that independence politically, culturally, and economically. And we refer to it as kind of the three legged stool that independence sits on, uh, because uh, if you lose one of those, it falls over. And and you see that time and time again, right? Imagine for a moment, Texas becomes uh, politically independent, but somehow we uh, allow ourselves to still be tied into the U.S. monetary system. Well, if you're not dictating your own monetary policy, it's being dictated by someone else. They can control the politics, right? They can control the culture. Uh, You go to Breitbart. You know, Breitbart was famous for saying that politics is downstream from culture. If you allow your culture to be perverted, which is what I would say is happening out of places like Hollywood right now, if you allow your culture to be perverted, that eventually will manifest in your politics, right? So you have to be independent in all three. So for us, from an advocacy perspective, that has has manifested itself in uh, you know monument protection. I mean, we were fighting the Alamo, the battle over the Alamo and our monuments back in starting back in two thousand nine. Um, you know, way ahead of the curve when everyone else was kind of out twiddling thumbs, uh, we were ringing the the alarm bells and trying to fight that thing. Um, you know, it's led us to uh, things like the, you know, support the Texas Gold Depository Act, which, you know, the big headline was that Texas is getting its own Fort Knox, but the real headline should have been the provision in there that allowed for the comptroller to create a system of electronic transaction denominated by deposits of precious metals in the depository, a.k.a. it is a de facto precious metal-backed currency, right? So those are the kinds of areas that that we work on, whether it's uh, in an advocacy uh, capacity or education. Um, You know, we we really take our mission from a holistic viewpoint and, and work it that way. So, Danny, where can people follow you online? Where can they find out more about the Texas Nationalist Movement? Yeah, I would encourage anyone who has questions to uh, about the TNM to visit our website at tnm.me. That's TNM as a Texas Nationalist Movement.me. But if they have specific Texit questions, um, I would recommend either they get a copy of my book, uh, Texit, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union. It's available on the TNM website or at all major book retailers. Or better yet, if they don't if you don't want to get the book. Uh, they can head over to texitnow.org, and we have not just general information about Texit, but answers uh, in-depth, uh, excruciatingly in-depth answers to about 100 of the most asked questions about Texit. So, Daniel, in conclusion, what would your message be to Texans that are pretty much fed up with uh, tyranny from government at all levels? Well, look, here's the bottom line. If it only it only works if you work it, right? Uh, you you don't you don't get change. Uh, and I you know, I think we could go back any number of of patriot founders said this, but you can't be expected to be transported from tyranny to liberty on a feather bed, right? This is going to take work. 
And for those that are, you know, maybe kind of on the fence trying to determine whether or not uh, they believe that Texas should withdraw or stay with the federal government, ask yourself the question that I asked earlier, which is knowing everything you know about the federal government, would you vote to join the union today? And if you wouldn't vote to join, then why in the world would you ever vote to stay? But it's, it's more, I think it's more important beyond just, you know, acknowledging that Texas is the way that we've got to go. I think it's important that everyone understand that this is not going to happen without each of us doing our part, right? Whether it's, you know, joining with us in the TNM and becoming a member or making a contribution or becoming a volunteer, or at a minimum, going out and engaging with your friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers and helping us identify uh, our people out there. You know, that is the key. The opposition has been able to uh, marginalize this uh, for far too long. They, they try to not talk about it. Uh, but you can't escape the fact that we had over 90 candidates in the last primary. Uh, all three of Abbott's main primary challengers publicly acknowledged that they wanted to vote on Texas. Uh, I mean, th- this, is, this is real. It is happening right now. Uh, and the more hands on deck we have, the faster it will happen. Well, Dan, we want to thank you for taking time and being on the Keep Texas Red podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Keep Texas Red podcast. Follow us on keeptexasred.org.